welcome to Happened Here. People, places, and the stories they tell. I'm Stephen Fry, host of this episode, A Night Out. There is always a frisson at the idea of a night out in the heart of London. In this episode, we've got a story about a woman whose soulful singing sent tingles down the spines of her World War II audiences. A story about the thrill of daredevil staging, but first, a story about goosebumps. Without further ado, let's begin. The Queen's Theatre, Haymarket, London. Ghosts. Written by V.L. Richardson, performed by Olivia Bell. Auditoriums are never really empty. To find yourself alone amongst the rows of velvet-covered seats, watched over by empty balconies and silent boxes, is to feel a tingle in your spine, a delicious sense that you don't really have the place to yourself. Something has seeped into the very fabric of the building. The wood, stone and velvet enveloping you have somehow been altered by the thousands of performances hosted here. Imagine an opera aficionado in 1711 at the recently opened Queen's Theatre, Haymarket, on whose site there is still a theatre today, attending the premiere of Rinaldo, the first opera Handel wrote for the London stage. Prices allow the poorer levels of society access to the footman's gallery, seats furthest away from the stage. The tiers surrounding the stools allot each class its proper place. In some private boxes, groups of aristocrats sit hunched around small tables for a night of cards and gaming. In the stalls, well-dressed young gentlemen promenade along Fop Alley, as the central aisle has become known, to flirt with ladies. Unlike today, the auditorium is alight throughout the evening as candles flicker in wall sconces and great candelabras hang from the ceilings. People talk, eat, drink constantly, greet friends. It's been too long, my dear fellow. Those breaches. Gossips decode the language of makeup. There, do you see? Pointing at an acquaintance sporting a small heart-shaped cloth patch on her face. It's moved from her eye to her cheek. You don't think she finally married him? Others fiddle mischievously with small, high-pitched whistles known as catcalls, with which they will punctuate tonight's performance. Once the music strikes up, the mood is more focused. Serious opera lovers light personal lanterns so they can follow the libretto. Most people fall silent during the arias to listen to the music, especially if a castrato with their extraordinary voice is singing. But during the recitatives, the auditorium is all a chatter once again. It's an irrepressible place of darted glances and conversation, a place not only to watch and listen, but to be seen and heard. These are the people's palaces. Through Baroque satins, Georgian silks, 
Regency muslin, Victorian crinolines, World War uniforms and Gen Z fashions, the crowds have kept coming. The dreams and fears of successive ages have been played out on stage for audiences, who in turn have laughed and raged, cried and catcalled, loved and applauded through the centuries. Perhaps all theatres are haunted, each one playing host to the apparitions of performances and patrons past, and maybe some of our own experiences as we settle into our slightly cramped seats today, comes from being part of a long line of theatre-goers who have chosen to gather together for a liaison on a birthday to see a favourite actor or simply because they love the theatre. So the next time you walk into an auditorium, if you feel an unexpected breath on your shoulder or glimpse a silvery wisp out of the corner of your eye, tip an imaginary hat to the ghosts of actors and audiences past. They are inviting you to add your contribution to the never-ending story of a night at the theatre. From ghosts in the theatre to mad, extravagant theatricals that might raise an eyebrow or two today. Theatre Royal, Drury Lane, London. A Horse in Your Lap, Madam? Written by James Rampton. Performed by Joanna Lumley. Want to see a life-size helicopter landing on stage? No problem. How about a full-size pleasure cruiser sailing smoothly across the proscenium arch? Coming right up. These spectacular coups de théâtre from Miss Saigon and way upstream, respectively, may seem like the ultimate modern phenomenon. But, if anything, stage shows in the 19th and early 20th century were even more over the top. They achieved astounding technical feats that somewhat more restrictive laws would never allow these days. Would health and safety risk the prospect of several half-ton racehorses careering off stage and landing in the lap of the punters in the front row? Oh, I somehow doubt it. But that's exactly the sort of thing that happened in the West End theatres during that era, when productions were strangers to the idea of understatement. Take The Whip, a play which thrashed its audience with excessive spectacle. The 1909 production of Cecil Raleigh and Henry Hamilton's play at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane offered more melodrama than the Grand National and Derby combined. The piece focused on a heroine who is desperate to defy jockey club regulations and ride a horse called The Whip in the 2000 Guineas race. The evening included a train, which derailed just before being smashed to smithereens by an oncoming express in a noisy maelstrom of steam and twisted metal. But even that titanic scene was left in the shade by the denouement. No fewer than 12 jockeys mounted real horses, which sprinted along a travelator on stage in a recreation of the thrills and spills of the 2000 Guineas race. At least audiences could see very clearly what their ticket money had been spent on. 
As you might expect from such an ambitious and technically demanding show, the play was beset with difficulties, not the least of which was the fact that on the opening night, the whip did not, as intended, manage to win the race. To contemporary ears, the whip sounds like a show that was flogging several live horses. And yet, at the time, it was ecstatically received. It ran for 388 performances and broke all known box office records at the Theatre Royal. And not a single racehorse ended up in the front row. This sumptuous, totally daft production was part of a long tradition of grandiose spectaculars at the Theatre Royal that stretched back to the beginning of the 19th century. For instance, one of the most popular plays of that era was the 1823 production of the felicitously named play The Cataract of the Ganges. The title is rounded off with an exclamation mark which tells you all you need to know about this marvellously overstated extravaganza about the British in India. In its most willfully overblown scene, a wild and turbulent cataract of white water cascaded towards the audience as several dashing cavalrymen, yes, horses again, galloped past at high speed on their trusty steeds. At the same time, serious fires were breaking out everywhere and flaring up in a scary, untamed fashion. It must have been an astonishing evening, except for one slight nagging doubt. As the last two theatres on that site had burnt to the ground, was it really such a good idea to have a finale featuring several enormous fires raging out of control on stage? From the extravagant to the simple. One singer, one spotlight and a voice. The Café de Paris nightclub, 3 to 4 Coventry Street, Piccadilly Circus. Stormy weather. Written by James Rampton. Performed by Jasmine Elcock. There's no sun. Bombs keep raining from the sky on London's dark, unlit streets. Air raid sirens cry. Yet... Inside the Café de Paris, smoke swirls and silk rustles. You can almost forget that there is a war on. Forget that there is anything, in fact, to worry about at all. And in the middle of the floor, framed by a split, soaring staircase, is a woman who is just as happy centre stage 20 feet underground in a hazy, tiered club as she is in her rather grander theatres in Covent Garden and the West End. For Elizabeth Welch, a New Yorker who has made London her home, music is music, and she loves to perform. Handsome uniformed Johnnies, naval captains on leave, civvies in their wartime best, all shut out for a while the gloom and misery everywhere, as Welch croons her evocative cabaret numbers. Not for nothing is she being hailed as one of the finest Broadway stars ever to have come to London. Singing was abhorrent to Welch's father, a Baptist preacher of Native American and African American heritage, who disapproved even of whistling. On realising that his beloved daughter had taken to the stage, he reportedly exclaimed, Girl is on the boards, she's lost! She was to become many things, but never lost. 
After working as a chorus dancer and cabaret singer, including in the successful Shuffle Along, featuring Broadway's first all-black cast, she hopped over to Paris to sing in dusty, velvet-draped Montmartre nightclubs. The songwriter Cole Porter invited Welch to England, and she sang in Soho and Covent Garden clubs. In 1934, she became the first black broadcaster to be given her own radio series by the BBC, Soft Lights and Sweet Music. But above all, she loved to sing in dark, cosy clubs. Although London was not a welcoming place for a black single woman, her extraordinary voice, electric stage presence, enigmatic, coy smile belying real determination meant she was top billing wherever she went. The late-night West End crowd in the Café de Paris begins to shush each other. A spotlight falls on Welch's feather-trimmed stole and that smile breaks across Welch's face. She will sing the song she made famous in London in 1933, the same year it was first performed in the Cotton Club in Harlem, Stormy Weather. The Café de Paris would be blown to smithereens mere weeks later, when two bombs whistled down a ventilation shaft, decapitating the young, vibrant conductor Ken Snake Hips Johnson mid-performance. That bombing raid also hit Buckingham Palace the very same night. Despite the danger, Welch would stay in London during the war, singing to the troops, adding her voice to the glitz, making the blitz that much more bearable. In the decades after the war, her light would slowly dim, and she would have to settle for small parts in film and television, latterly performing to fund her own hip replacements. But in 1980, in a glorious swan song, she reprised her signature Stormy Weather, aged 76, in Derek Jarman's The Tempest, dripping in gold lame, surrounded by a chorus line of leaping sailors. For now, though, in the wartime London club, centre stage, she turns shrugs a silk-draped shoulder. <sighs> Tingles from the top of your head to the tip of your toes. Nights out in London's West End through the centuries. Happened here. People, places and the stories they tell. Hi, I'm Jasmine Elcock, and I read the story on Elizabeth Welch. Such an inspiring story for me as a vocalist myself, and it really resonated with me, especially because I got to record this scatting. If you're intrigued by the other stories we've got for you, visit happenedhere.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, tell your friends, and leave us a kind review and a rating on your podcast platform of choice. But for now... Everybody involved in Happened Here, the writers, the hosts, the performers, thank you for listening. Do come again. We've got lots more stories to tell. Ah, happened here.